Cool, hey y'all. So I'm here today with Alex. Say hi, Alex. Hello. Um, we're going to be talking about the archaeology of knowledge. So this is was Foucault's probably his fifth book? Fourth major fourth? work. Fourth major work. Yeah, in amongst minor works. Like some minor works in there as well. Yeah. So the ones that preceded this, you know, right off the top of my head, with I think of Madness of Civilization, Birth of the uh, Clinic. Uh, oh, you have them here, yeah? Order uh, of Things. The, yeah. And so then this would be his fourth one. In in order, so History of Madness in nineteen sixty, Birth of the Clinic in sixty three, The Order of Things in sixty six, and then Archaeology of Knowledge in sixty nine. Perfect. And in many ways this text well we'll get into this, but this this book is he reevaluates what he was doing in his previous ones as far as his methodology was went and um, what he was doing with that, which is certainly interesting and it, it raises some interesting questions. But as for yourself, Alex, what, what are your interests? What are you doing now? Um, so I'm second year MA, so I'm trying to finish my master's thesis on Foucault in particular. And just to give like the brief evolution of it, it started um, off with Foucault and Derrida and being about the philosophy of history and what both, both of those thinkers thought about it. And it rather quickly got pared down to just Foucault, um, <laughs> which I'm happy about, uh, for sure. It's much more manageable. But I'm specifically looking at, in the Archaeology of Knowledge, in the introduction, he talks about the monument and document, and it seems to be like a very foundational idea or argument on his part that he makes and then kind of drops or just takes it as accepted almost. And it doesn't seem to be taken up in much of the secondary literature. Um, people will mention it occasionally in like one sentence. And the, the few things I've found that have been written about that distinction seem to be um, rather insufficient or don't really seem to do it justice or what Foucault is saying justice. So I'm looking at that um, distinction in particular, um, what like my first chapter was just trying to figure out what Foucault is claiming and then uh, from there I'm trying to bring in a couple other thinkers just in a really like minor way to elucidate and question Foucault's distinction and whether or not it holds up and if it does more work in his thought than he admits or makes clear. So cool. well if, if there's any place to start with, that certain, certainly would seem like a good one. Uh, so what is, you know, what do you see to be the mon monument in this text and well, the document? Um, I just want to say, first of all, the introduction to the archaeology of knowledge. Every time I read it, and I've read it many times now, uh, I still, like, get a thrill from it every time. It just seems like he's so... Um, he seems like really insightful, but also very combative and polemic, right? He's really... Um, uh, and to, to, to put that into perspective, his first line goes as follows. For many years now, historians have preferred to turn their attention to long periods, as if, beneath the shifts of changes of political events, they were trying to reveal the stable, almost indestructible system of checks and balances, 
the irre irreversible processes, the constant readjustments, the underlying tendencies that gather force, and are then suddenly reversed after centuries of continuity, the movements of accumulation and slow saturation, the great silent, motionless bases that, that traditional history has covered with a thick layer of events, which is, as Alex put it, quite polemical. Yeah, and even the part that I always get a, a charge out of, too, is um, the end where he's he does a bit of a back and forth with some of the critiques that he receives. Um, where he says, I mean, the last line in particular, do not, do not ask who I am and do not ask me to remain the same. Leave it to our bureaucrats and our police to see that our papers are in order. At least spare us the mora their morality when we write. So yeah. Just like, <laughs> you know, just very compatible. Uh, yeah. Um, so, Dave, I just had uh, a few things I kind of wanted to get through first in, like, specifically what he's saying in the introduction yeah. and how he kind of sees this project um, in relation to the rest of the philosophical tradition. Right. And his previous work. Could you fill in some blanks then? <laughs> well, I can try. I don't know. Um, I felt like I, just in preparing for this, um, had some new thoughts or like thoughts I hadn't had before about what he's doing here and how he sees these um, patterns working. So that was um, exciting for me. So like he said, um, this is his fourth major work and he makes an interesting claim about how it's me like methodologically related to his previous texts. Um, he says he is 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 not ex this is not um, articulating the exact method that he used in his previous text. He characterizes it more as like he was groping to try and figure out his method through those texts, but also those texts and the content that he discussed. I think he's thinking particularly of um, like the anthropo anthropology and humanistic discourses in the order of things. He says those like reveal the ground or the basis for the archaeology as well. So in understanding how like the concept of man or that particular humanism that he's discussing in the order of things, in understanding how those came about, he kind of sees this distinction or this, um, he calls it and in my thesis, I use this term a lot because I think it's very clear. The epistem epistemological mutation of history, which is that shift that you, when you read that, that first line there, this shift from the traditional concept of history to what he sees as like radically new history. And it is that epistemological mutation. Um, so... He's not, he's, in short, he's not claiming that I was doing archaeology all along. This is exactly how I was writing these previous texts. Now I will articulate that in full. He's not saying that at all. He's saying writing those texts prepared me to write the archaeology of knowledge, in a way. And to put that in, uh, in his own words, what he says specifically, though, about madness and civilization is that, generally speaking, madness and civilization accorded two are far too great a place, and a very enigmatic one too, to what I called an experiment, thus showing to what extent one was still close to admitting an anonymous and general subject of history, whatever that person might be, whether it be the mad, whether it be the, the mm. non-mad, whatever we consider yeah. that, 
um, how that person in he's willing to recognize in his own account uh, was perhaps a little bit too homogenous. It was something that sure. l was too easy to define and then very easy to then excavate. Sure, or just replace what had been the prior um, transcendental subject of history, you know, individual subjective cognition or something like that, with just a different, like you said, homogenous subjectivity. Right. So madness or the insane or something like that, mm -hmm. or, so or the delinquent. The archaeology, or the, the act of doing an archaeological... Um, I guess method or whatever, however you <laughs> however you'd put it in that in that yeah. way here, uh, doing its kind of genealogical work, is not so much interested in what's already uh, always already present, but it's about sort of excavating or performing an archaeology of those things that have been omitted, those things that have probably you know never give, been given that certain light until of course now and sure yeah yeah I think that's fair. Um, I just want to talk about the distinction between like what I usually call the traditional model of history or the traditional method mm -hmm. um, and and then contrast that with archaeology and then we'll maybe get into some of the specifics of the different terms used to describe archaeology mm -hmm. um, and this is mainly like like I said uh, how he sees this fitting in or not fitting in with um, previous versions of philosophy of history uh, so in the traditional model, I think it's pretty fair, and Dave, correct me if you think this is unfair, um, but uh, for Foucault, there is a movement from what we could call the pre-discursive, um, so usually this is something like humanity or telos or logos, spirit, reason, continuity, development, progress, something like that. Um, and in the introduction, he says, quote, the possibility of discovering or continuing a meaning in the inertia of the past and in the unfinished totality of the present. So a movement from some type of primordial reason or something that is a priori the world of sense, history, and human cognition. And then a movement from that into what we could call discourse or just that realm of human affairs, culture, history, um, um, manifestation in the corporeal world. Um, and in this traditional view, any type of difference in historical discourse, and this is all, again, Foucault's account of this, so this He's painting the historical tradition with a very broad brush. Um, uh, the difference is seen as a type of failure of the historian. He's, I think he says that specifically, or, or a comment to that um, effect, where if I'm a historian writing a tra uh, traditional historical account, or um, an account of you know, the history of ideas, um, there's almost always a dialectic at work where or not necessarily dialectic, but, you know, he's thinking of Hegel, um, where any type of difference needs to be accounted for and brought within the, you know, teleological uh, account of history, right? So everything is a, a function of reason or spirit or logos. And 
anything that at first appears not to be, you just haven't figured out how it's subsumed yet. And then from that um, level of discourse or history, there is a return once your account is complete or um, you know sufficient or something like that um, back to that um, first principle. So spirit or logos or so uh, you know the Hegelian account is again like the the boogeyman that is brought up a lot, but you know the uh, self-consciousness of spirit, right? Or like coming to self-consciousness um, of spirit, right? Where it's both a return but also a transcendence of discourse. Um, so I don't know. Do you think that's? I think that's fair. fair yeah. But now, how would you how would you lay out uh, sure. what he does differently? Sure. So I just in preparing uh, for this was thinking of what Foucault wants to do in this text as he wants to make discourse uh, thick, uh, where in the traditional account, it's really um, one of Foucault's gripes is that it's um, not treated as an event itself. It's just something that whatever your transcendental or pre-discursive principle is, so logos or spirit or whatever, moves through discourse um, is manifest in discourse, but discourse itself is uneventful, both in that it does not do things independent of the transcendental principle, and it's not itself an event. Um, so he really wants to examine discourse in all its um, multifaceted functions, all its interactions, um, how it constitutes things, all its interactions with power relations, um, and also at all its different levels. Right. Uh, and again, to put, put it in his terms, what, uh, how this comes out in the archaeological method is as follows. The right of words, which is not that of, all, of the philologists, authorizes therefore the use of the term archaeology to describe all these searches. This term does not imply the search for a beginning, or perhaps what we can liken to, like, the logos, the spirit, yeah. reason, these types of um, institutional formations. This term does not imply the search for a beginning. It does not relate analysis to ge ge geological excavation. Sorry. It designates the general theme of a description that questions the already said at the level of e its existence, of the enunciative function that operates within it, of the discursive formation and the general archive system to which it belongs. Archaeology describes discourses as practices specified in the element of the archive. Yeah. Which is, again, well, not again, but that's, there's a lot there. Sure. So the beginning of that quote, he does this a lot, or not a lot, but multiple places, because traditional history um, places a high um, priority or emphasis on the origin, right? But it's the, it's very different from the, archaeological origin it's like a mystical or like you know first principle that you can never fully return to right but it's somehow the foundation of you know reality or values or everything um that's Foucault's very clear that's not what he's trying to do yeah and he mm -hmm. thinks um you get this in the introduction as well um he thinks Nietzsche's genealogy in particular which has is hugely formative on Foucault. He thinks that has been um, appropriated by 
traditional accounts of history as just that search for the mystical, unattainable first origin, right? which he, he wants to reclaim Nietzsche and mm-hmm. say, no, that's not what Nietzsche is doing. You've, like I said, appropriated him. His meaning, and again, like mainly in the, uh, the genealogy of morals, right? his meaning is the exact opposite, that you're not, there is no such origin. Right. Um, so um, another thing that uh, kind of um, struck me um, anew um, when, when working on this is that he describes his method or archaeology as a series of concentric circles. So I tried to run with that a little bit and see um, if we take that on faith, where, um, where does that take us? And does that help us explain Foucault's work in the archaeology? So I've taken the liberty of very schematically drawing out. Yeah, for those who can't yeah. see it, imagine a big circle. Yeah, it's with, just in the big circle is a smaller circle, and in that circle is a smaller circle, and that one's smaller and smaller. So you have layers. Like, imagine the Earth's crust. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's, it's super simplistic um, and does not at all do justice to the complexity of what Foucault's describing, but I think it gives us at least a sense of the scope of each term and maybe what each of them is meant to encompass. Um, so what exists on the periphery? So, what, what, well, I want to do the opposite. I want to start with I the beginning? Work from, what, the... work from the origin? Or, okay, we're going to yeah, start with the origin. We're going to throw because, it all out of whack. No, because I have a, I have a reason. I'm, um, I'm excited. Because he starts, again, maybe this is just my own um, bias, but he starts in the introduction talking about the monument and document mm-hmm. yep. and how this whole change, this epistemological mutation of history is because we have shifted from making documents or seeing or reading documents to seeing or reading monuments. So, I want to, I mean, also maybe it just makes it easier on me to start from that beginning. Oh, no. You want to take it closer? I dig it. I dig it. Um, So, in the middle, in the very center, the smallest circle, we have, uh, I have this statement. So, um, I feel like, (laughs) I don't know, Dave, uh, maybe you feel similarly, but reading Foucault, he often says, um, he, he comes up with a term and he says, I'm going to describe this, and then describes it negatively, and says, yeah. it's not X. And then his subsequent description makes it seem like it is X, Yeah. right? So he says the statement is not the um, like atomic first building block of, or like smallest building block of history. Right. Um, but I think in the fact that he's acknowledging that, he sees how his description is, he might make you think that. Um, so but the statement for him is not something that, it, it almost ex- exists on the realm of the metaphor. And yeah. not, not because they do the same thing, <sighs> but because it's, um, it goes beyond you know, the simple uh, properties of language as being the attachment of a single signifier to a signified or something yes. like that. But it actually evokes something else. It's, it's where you know language keeps going. It's beyond the scope of language in a sense. Yeah. So he's he goes through the different um, 
Um, other theories of what the first um, or like smallest unit of discourse could be and why each of them is insufficient. So he particularly says um, a proposition. So like I'm thinking like analytic theory and propositions being the first um, or smallest unit. And he also says the speech act cannot be the first unit and neither can the sentence. So I think your description is right, Dave. I think it's, like you said, almost like a metaphor or it can be any of those things, but each of those things is insufficient in itself to describe the statement. Yeah. So a statement might be a proposition, it might be a speech act, it might be a sentence. And the same um, same sentence could be a completely different statement depending on where it is situated yep. in what discourse or enunciative field. Right, and, and, and across languages as well, yeah. where, you know, he takes up the how translation might affect a statement where it still may retain its mm-hmm. its meaning but when we're when we're existing or when we're when we're all working with different languages you you know we know very well that the same words may not be needed to evoke the exact same statement which, yeah which for him sure says that okay what kind of attachment is there to these signifiers words whatever whatever we want to use uh, to the statement itself it seemed rather arbitrary in a sense how the meaning that can come out of a statement is very much of its own right. It, yeah. it, it floats above language. Sure, yeah, exactly. Especially when you think of like idiomatic um, yeah. phrases or sayings in different languages. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Like like in French, you know, uh, if, if, or I should say uh, Quebec French, where <laughs> if, if you're down on your luck, you say, mon chien est mort, which a direct translation would be, my dog is dead, but that, that doesn't mean <laughs> That's anything not what in, at all. in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, going on, oh, we have the statement. So, sure, so uh, uh, just to give an example, um, or at least um, I was taught this example in, when learning about uh, like J.L. Austin, how to do things with words and about speech acts. But um, if, if you remember, Dave, in uh, Indiana Jones and the uh, Temple of Doom, oh, yeah, there's okay. this scene there in the mine, and um, they're at the very end, and they're like right on the edge of a cliff. Okay. And Indiana Jones has used his the soles of his shoes to break the mine car. Oh right, so he really, put his really feet hot. down. Yeah, 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 yeah really, yeah, really yeah. hot. And he's saying, like, water, water. Like I'm parched. I'm really, really hot. I need water. And then. Simultaneously, there is uh, a torrent of water coming through the mine shaft about right. to hit them, and then he sees it or hears it and says, "Water, water!" No. Right? But those are two very different statements yeah. or different speech acts, yeah. for sure, right? Yeah. Even though they're in the exact same, in the exact same sentence or speech act. Same um, word, this, almost the same like exactly, uh, yeah. utterance, like the same yeah, yeah, need, if you will. Um, so we get a sense there, I think, of, um, like you said, the, how the this, this statement's really not tied to the words that you utter. Um, uh, what else do I have here to say? You did a good job of covering quite a bit of it, Dave. <laughs> Just jumped ahead <laughs> you a bit pre- there? You preempted some of my notes here, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, Maybe I jumped the gun a little bit. I think an important thing that we haven't said yet is, um, for Foucault, a statement 
is never isolated or independent. Right. Right. So um, you can think of like various analytic philosophies of language where you can just have like a proposition, just like floating, context-free, or you get that implication at least. Um, but statements are distinct because they're never outside of a, a context. And for Foucault, that means um, an enunciative field uh, or strategy. Yeah. So they're always tied to other statements in some way. Um, here on, on page uh, um, 98, he says, quote, there can be no statement that is that in one way or another does not reactualize others. Um, so it really can't stand by itself, but rather in a, in a network. Um, also important to know or remember is he emphasizes or mentions uh, several spots the materiality of statements. Okay. And uh, I'll, I'll admit this is something that I haven't thought about much and I'm not really sure the implications of or what he perceives as the implications of this. Um, so I'm not I'm not really sure how to how to speak to that or do that justice. I don't know. Do you have any? And when you on when that? you when you mean the material, uh, do you mean the, where he brings up the idea of the analysis of wealth or the analysis? No. Of no, he, he says it much. I have a I have a quote here somewhere. Um, Maybe I can't find it. Uh, here we go. The statement is always uh, given through some material medium, even if that medium is concealed, even if it is doomed to vanish as soon as it appears. And the statement not only needs this materiality, its materiality is not given to it. In addition, once all its determinations have been fixed, it is partially made up of this materiality. So I'm not sure if he if he just means discourse is not independent from the material. I, I mean, obviously he means more than that, but I think I think he'd agree. I think I think he'd agree, but he'd be like, yeah, if you uh, if you give me a facile reading of my text, because I want to I want to give him like more like I feel like they're sure, but more there. So just in a little, I have been thinking about that. For me, it's connected to his idea, especially in later texts, where history is written upon the body, right? In a very, like, fundamental or, like, inescapable way. Right. Right? So I think discourse goes hand-in-hand hand with that or accompanies that in a way. Well, insofar it can actually it produces real effects or, or, or in whatever way that... You know, and even if we think of the statement in its more, like, raw form, um, how the statement itself... For it to be a statement, it must be able to evoke in some measure, we would hope, uh, some sort of, I guess, bodily response, if you put it as, as such, or, or uh, for it to evoke some kind of emotion, for it to evoke some kind of a feeling that goes beyond, and perhaps we're just going back to this transcendental idea, like this is something that's floating above everything else, and perhaps it's inevitable, like he's, he's coming out of Hegel, certainly, but... Was, yeah, or or he uh, maybe this is what you mean. He or he emphasizes the materiality of the statement to um, ensure it can't be 
misconstrued as a transcendental object. I see. That's right? a, it's yeah, always on the level of the material. Like discourse operates on the level of the material, not. He he makes this point somewhere good else. Distinction. Not. Uh, he makes this point somewhere else, not in reference to the materiality of the statement, but just in general that discourse is not itself a new transcendental principle or transcendental origin. Right. Or, uh, like, discourse itself cannot be pre-discursive, which sounds really uh, self-explanatory, but he wants to ensure that his... Um, his work and his um, explanation of discourse here is not appropriated in the same way that Nietzsche's discourse was, right? So he wants to make sure uh, his his idea of discourse doesn't itself become or get appropriated as a transcendental principle. No, that's good. Uh, I think that's a good point of distinction. And when he when we think of the statement, then. And in some ways, you know, we are thinking about discourse, which, you know, people certainly cherry-pick Foucault, and they, they, they like him for this. They say, Foucault's the thinker of discourse, he's the thinker of knowledge, he's the thinker of power. But like you said at the beginning, you know, we think of the document and the monument, there's certainly a lot more going on. And keeping that in mind, what does it necessarily mean then for Foucault to analyze the statement, keeping this in mind, if that's even... A thing worth asking in that is the statement something that can be how does he how does he look at it without necessarily regressing into the same kind of methodological principle emblematic of sure how does he tra philosophical tradition how does he not just um lapse into establishing it as a new yeah yeah a new spirit or a new almost logos almost or just something? by by retroactively establishing it precisely by yeah you know saying that it stands apart in a sense. Sure. Well, I think, even if it I is think just something that's it attached, I think he's saying it doesn't stand apart, right? Okay. Like it, it has the characteristic of precisely not standing apart. But your, I think your point is good. You can't. You still, as a histor, as an archaeological historian or historian doing this type of archaeology, um, you are still somehow according to Foucault, able to see the statement as an individual object right. or individual um, discursive object in which or of which you can examine. Right. Right. And, and precisely because and I, I think that this is where it, it does differ in that, and it comes out in this sentence, it is useless, therefore, to look for the statement among unitary groups of signs, in that it's not something that can necessarily be, but one single method can necessarily figure it out, right? And when Foucault is talking about archaeology, is he thinking, like, in some sense that, or implying that it's, it, it can assume many forms to match, in a sense, to look at the, the, uh, the statement as it varies across time and space, um, I think yes, or almost. Um, I don't know if I would... You don't have to answer it now. I'll let you... <laughs> sure, I don't know, I don't know if I would want to say, like, archaeology for him assumes many forms. I almost want to say that. Um, he always, or often, um, emphasizes the heterogeneity of discourse and of statements mm -hmm. um, and how discourse appears 
um, or we see discourse as composed of different statements, there's really, um, he doesn't think he can, he looks at history and sees unity or conformity. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. In, in like, I don't, I don't think he thinks that's possible through his method. Yeah. And to, I, I don't want to, you know, move this point much more, but if, if we're thinking of Foucault as the thinker of uh, discontinuity or of ruptures or of, you know, I guess discontinuity, that was, that word was fine. But um, then how do we account for him kind of locating all this in the, in this figure of the statement or as being this, this, I guess this unitary thing, and of course it'd be unrealistic to say, hey, Foucault, you, you know, to remain true to your method, you got to have a different word for every different kind of, <laughs> for every different moment that it springs up. Oh, I mean, I, it's, sorry, just on that small point, it seems like he uses different words for the same concept often in this text. Like he'll say... Oh, it's the ouvre and... Uh, well, not, not that, uh, that's not what I had in mind in particular, but like enunciative field, right. enunciative strategy... Um, discursive regularity, discursive formulation, or formation, right? He just has, like, and I'm, it makes sense as a writer, right? Like, you don't want to, I, I don't know what you did, but I've had that experience of, like, oh, yeah. just I, using I the same word so often in essay, yeah. but, like, that's the, that's the term for it, right? Yeah. So, I have a bit of sympathy, but it's also, like, every distinction like that, you're like, wait, does he mean those are the two, two different things, or are those the yeah. exact same thing? Yeah. So, um... That didn't really answer your and question. That's, that's but I, I have a few comments about uh, discontinuity um, later on, maybe. Okay. Um, so, I just want to, maybe, this is a good time to return to the, the, the center circles. The, we're still in the first circle, we're by still the way. We're still in the first circle, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we've done the first circle. We checked that one off. Um, so, the second one I have here is series. Um, the second ah. one out from the center. Yeah, which is, again, uh, I feel like I don't, have as good of a handle on this as I'd like. Um, I only have a couple uh, notes. But he says, again in the introduction, um, that the new problem, where the, where the problem of traditional history was constructing or seeing how all of history was a continuity or a unity, despite all the contradictions that appear at first glance, the new problem, the problem of archaeology, is to find series between uh, monuments, or between statements. Yep. Um, and to establish those series, all the while um, knowing or acknowledging the fact that series are irreducible to a single law. So resisting or, or knowing that, or maybe this is the best way to think of it, resisting the uh, urge or heritage from the uh, philosophical tradition to subsume um, contradictions or paradoxes into a single form or unity. Um, so he, yeah, he really establishes um, the goal of finding or seeing series um, between statements and it would be a mistake to think that um, he he has the goal, I think, of looking for a particular series at a particular time. Yeah. Right. So, in um, 
you know, the history of madness, I'm going to look for, he's going to look for a series of statements about um, the regulation and confinement of madness in the classical age in France, right? But all the while knowing that that series and the statements um, in that series intersect and are implicated in many other series. Yep. Right? So if he looks at a particular um, legal record of a particular medical case, that might be implicated in so many other series that right. he's just not choosing to follow in that text, right? Right. Because you can't follow all the, all yeah. the series. You can't plot everything, right? Yeah. So he's in, in, interested in particular problems and following particular series. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Can I move? Yeah, well, let's, if we can think about that in relationship to the document and the monument for a moment, mm -hmm. um, where at one time he says the document was sort of afforded kind of an ambiguity, like where, where the document was something to be contested, we it wasn't afforded. Well, okay. It, well, it, I would say maybe it wasn't afforded ambiguity. Well, then, no, then <laughs> certainly clarify. If, sure. So, um, it was taken as a signifier of um, some deeper or hidden or mystical signified um, that it only hinted at, and the historian had to do... Um, some type of work to uncover that and find out what the document really meant, mm -hmm. right? So I'm, again, reading, let's take a medical record as an example in, in France in like the 16th century or 17th century. Um, it might say that this person had, uh, you know, X punishment and, you know, <laughs> reading legal documents, they're, you know, very dry, right? So for the, to read that as a document, it it means more. It says more than what that text actually says or the statement actually says. Mm -hmm. Right? There is some further narrative or implication of that. And if you're doing your job correctly as a historian, you find out what the text really meant. Right. What the statement really meant. Right. Um, so his, um, his goal is to treat those statements as monuments instead of documents. And what he means by that is to... Where are my notes on this? There they are. To treat them um, as just a, a statement in themselves rather than implying anything further or behind them. Right. Um, and I, I, I'm still, like I said, uh, like this is what I'm doing my own work on, so I'm... I'll, I don't take Foucault at face value on this part, um, but I think maybe that's more to too much to get into at this point. But um, so in the introduction, he says this this shift from looking at uh, documents to now looking at monuments has had two effects, right? And you kind of got into this earlier with what you quoted, but in what we could say is like regular history or, you know, um, history of like, you know, wars and politics and, um, you know, what people usually think of when they think of history, right? Like event, cause and effect based history. 
it has had the effect of a shift to long durations. So here he's talk, er, thinking about the Annales school of French history in the 50s and 60s and yeah. 70s, yeah. Um, where there's a shift to like analyzing weather patterns or economic patterns, um, things like that, right? So you have people like Ferdinand Burdell, um, I can't think of any of the big names right now, but you have uh, histories where they're analyzing, uh, if not decade-long trends, um, or sorry, if not century-long trends, then decade-long trends right. in history. Mm -hmm. And he, he says this had the exact opposite effect in the history of ideas, where previously historians were interested in um, long durations of unity and the, all those narratives we mentioned already, um, you know, Hegel being, again, the poster boy, um, the shift has been to discontinuity right. and, and rupture and disruption. So for you, the series plays uh, a role in that, in that when we think of the series for, in Foucault, it's about thinking the series in relation to the rupture, in relation to the discontinuity. Certainly, yeah. But the series isn't really, it isn't something that comes up for him quite as much as like, unless we want to equate it with like the enunciative um, approach, mm. the enunciative field, yeah. or the statement, it seems like it kind of runs under the radar, like it is, it, relatively. Yeah, yeah, but no, it, I think that's fair. I think it's another um, term that he uses that's maybe under-theorized or like, it's easy to take uh, for granted, right? Because it's like, oh, he means a series in the way that I use that in everyday language. Yeah. Where I think maybe it deserves a bit more attention than, than mm -hmm. he gives it, or a bit more explanation what he means by that. And again, like I have a measure of sympathy because I don't know. I don't know how you write um, a interesting or original um, explanation of what a series is. Yeah, no. Right. It's just like <laughs> in, in, on as a side note, in Baudrillard's first book, he does it. And he, he does this thing, he wants to make a difference between, or um, to lay out the, the differences between models and series. And after like 15 pages, he's like, I hope you have an idea of what I'm trying to say now. <laughs> and, and I'm like, no, you still haven't made it clear. But yeah, I digress. Yeah. Um, so uh, another point, just a bit of an aside. Um, uh, I'd like to remember that the this um, change in history, the shift from... Um, seeing documents to seeing monuments, Foucault is clear that this is not this is not a normative claim that he's making. He's not saying we should be doing this and I'll show you the method to do it and it's better for X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah. He is saying this is a trend that has ha been happening for many years um, or yeah, quite a few years um, definitely prior to World War II. Um, and this is, he's explaining it, or, you know, what he sees as this mutation, but it's not that he is beginning this change, mm -hmm. or it's not that he's trying to create a rupture in the philosophy of history. Right, yeah, yeah. He's recognizing a rupture and explaining it and why he thinks it happened and his method in light of it. Yeah. So I, I would I usually like to characterize it as both a descriptive and normative claim, mm -hmm. where, uh, and you get this, um, I think, 
most extensively in um, the order of things, but also in the archaeology of knowledge, where he really sees himself as combating um, the anthropological or um, continued humanism of philosophy of history, the philosophy of ideas, right. in spite of this mutation of history. And he really sees that as, uh, yeah, dangerous, misguided, and untenable. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, what, how, how are we doing for time there? Uh, yeah, that might be a good place. We, we'll we'll, yeah, or, we'll okay. cut it out here sure, for now, and sure. that'll be our first... Uh, <laughs> thank you for listening. Th- this is going to continue, though. Uh, but for now, thank you for listening. I hope that, hope that everyone liked it. Uh, and of course, if anyone has any hardcore polemics, <laughs> some uh, thought grenades to chuck our way, you know how we to do it. Welcome them. Help me with my thesis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Someone's <laughs> got to write his thesis for him. Uh, don't right. write it for me. Just give me an idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks, y'all.